one thing we should probably do, we should probably say hi, Mark, and you wrote a blog post and like spell that out a little bit. And that's so conventional. That. It's such a trope, Renee. <laughs> that, that's just what they did. We're doing. We're doing do. it different. <laughs> You're listening to Tone Vendors, the Sound Designers Podcast. Let's do this. Welcome to Tone Vendors. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, it's Tim Muirhead. Hey, Tim. Hey, Renee. And we've got Teresa Morrow. Hi, Teresa. Hello. And we're joined by the one, the only, Mr. Mark Mangini. Thank you, Renee. Pleasure. Mark is back with us today. You've heard him previously on our episodes 68 and 100. He's one of our listeners' favorite guests as well as our own. And today we are welcoming him back to talk about audio tropes. So please take a minute to head over to markmangini.com to read his blog about tropes. There's lots of great posts there to catch up on as well. A couple of months back, there was this specific post about tropes, and I personally had a blast reading it. And I thought we would have him come back to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly with audio tropes. So Mark, what made you write that blog? post to begin with? It came up on Dune. Um, My co-supervisor, Theo Green, and I were looking over the movie as we did on Blade Runner and thought, what are the cliches that we want to avoid in this desert movie? And I was thinking back on that conversation about how we always endeavored to watch a scene and wonder, has this been done before? Has this been heard before? And if so, how can we better that for the betterment of the film? That's how it came up. We have a very loose uh, concept. I think we're just going to kind of go through Mark's audio tropes a blog post and yeah, <laughs> chew the fat on him and uh, go through there. And if we want to officially retire a tone bender sound of the year, let's do that. Um, but well, uh, I'm afraid of, of alienating some of the listeners <laughs> from, from what you, you wrote me um, <laughs> I'm feeling like, you know, I don't want to be the sound police and have people think we've legislated uh, unilaterally that no one can ever again use the Wilhelm. But I think it's a great idea. Fair point, right? So definitely something should get like nominated for for deletion, right? Serious consideration. Yeah. Yeah. There's also those actual very specific effects that we could call out by name and number. I think the name and number effects are like high on the list. Yeah. Ah, I'm not as versant in those. I'm versant in, I know there's a particular dog effect that I've heard a thousand times, but I, I never took the time to look it up and see who the offender is. Well, we got lucky because a lot of people that commented, particularly in the Slack channel, was like, I hate this effect. And it was a link to the sound ideas yes. <laughs> page. So like, it was like, okay, that's it. Easy to- uh, Are you going to lose a sponsorship over this? <laughs> we don't have any sponsors. We, well, we, what is a sponsorship? Yeah. yeah. We got no worries. <laughs> all right. There. Free agents, Mark. <laughs> Beautiful. All right, let's trash them all. <laughs> yeah, we can really delve into the psychology of uh, the people who take offense at being told other people's opinions. Yeah. <laughs> And let's let's be clear. This is my opinion. I'm not trying to be the sound Nazi. I have an aesthetic and I I feel as though maybe that's the way to open up the discussion is why do I care about why do any of us care about tropes? And what's really the bigger discussion with that? It isn't a discussion about literally retiring a sound or making sounds go away. For me, it's more about a critical observation of our work 
and using that knowledge effectively to do something maybe more effective or nuanced when you become aware that something you've done might fall into the category of a sound trope. And if you do, look, clearly sound tropes have their value, you know, in kitsch. You know, you want sound tropes, you leverage them, you try to highlight them. They're a useful tool in our toolbox. But I would argue that, you know, for dramatic narrative cinema, the kinds of tropes that we're going to play with about car skids and dog barks and thunder on the flash and those kinds of things, we should just be aware of them so that we have an opportunity to reconsider how we might approach a scene to find something that's maybe a little more interesting. So it's a learning opportunity. This is an exercise for us to learn and grow together. For sure. How's that for Kumbaya? Oh, that's way too nice. (laughs) All right, dig in there, Teresa. (laughs) So one of the things I think that people got defensive over is the idea that if a director tells them to put the sound in, they got to put the sound in. And we're referencing a post that was put on the sound design uh, Facebook page as well as in a Slack channel. Some people got very defensive as if they were being called out for using these sounds. And I think it's worth noting, as Mark kind of alluded to, that we've all used these sounds. You know, I do too. Yeah, like this is not something (laughs) that anyone is innocent of. And there's also a weird thing, especially for people earlier in their career, where I feel like when they use a sound that they recognize from something it makes them feel like they're part of a lineage, like they're joining the oh, club. You know what I mean? The community. Like, oh, that sound, I've heard that in a bunch of things. If I put it in my project now, I'm part of that legacy kind of thing. Uh, Which, but it's, uh, it can be referential too, right? Of course. It can be like, not just in the placing of it, but in the hearing of it, it's referential to other things, obviously. And it can evoke those feelings from like, you hear that typical red-tailed hawk thing and like... I hear a red-tailed hawk in real life, and I feel creeped out, like (laughs) the bad guys are coming. (laughs) They're very emotionally effective, some of them. The first couple of times I put some of the trope sounds into things, I was very early on, and I didn't know I was doing it. And then when I started seeing specifically, like, so I emailed you guys this uh, premiere edition, uh, Kids Laugh. (laughs) And that thing has haunted me for 20 years because I put it in something and did not know. Like, I was like, oh, I found this one. It's the perfect one, right? And I put it in there. And then it's just like in everything for my whole life. And I'm like, I just, I did it wrong. And especially when you're early on and all you have are the stack of CDs. You don't even have the hard drives. You've got the CDs and you're going through the book and you're finding the thing. (laughs) And then you just think you're the best in the world. Yeah. I empathize with all of those fellow artists who rightfully are concerned because often they don't get to choose those sounds. A, a, a well-meaning director might ask for Frankenstein Thunder on the, uh, on <laughs> the lightning Thunder. flash. Castle Thunder, that's the one. We have to talk about Castle Thunder. <laughs> We're not calling these individuals out for the use of them, maybe trying to uh, give maybe the the younger members of the community an opportunity to be aware of the dangers, lest a situation like befell Rene befalls them. (laughs) We don't want to be haunted by our past, and if we can prevent someone from that awful (laughs) sinking feeling. 
I, I literally, I heard that thing in Seoul. I mean, I, I hear it in like all the high-end films and all the TV shows. It's everywhere, right? And so actually, Mark, this is something that you would really have a really good sense of. It seems like the mechanism by which a lot of that stuff ends up in mixes is that the, the picture editors are cutting sounds into place, right? Right. And then, you know, it's been sitting there with them as they've been editing picture for months. And then it's just, you know, people are loath to change certain things that they've been living with forever. This is, you know, the temp love syndrome. It, it has a number of names and monikers. And, you know, it's it's such a crazy thing that I, when I retire and I'm really wealthy from winning the lottery, <laughs> I'm going to commission a psychological study on why the temp dub syndrome actually exists and what's the mechanisms that undergird it. I'm convinced that there's some connection to the feeling we get when we fall in love for the first time. We never forget that first love. There's some subconscious mechanism that you just can't rip from your brain the lock you have on it. And so the first time you see that fusion of sound and image and something works, there's some elation that happens and and you don't want to let go of it. And editors, remember, too, often have to work in a kind of shorthand that we don't have to. It's sometimes their tracks are full of tropey sounds because they're trying to communicate to us Here's the intention. Now go do something better than this. But then, after a month, six months, a year of living with it, you acclimate, and now you start to miss it because, you know, Mark tried to put in something different. And, boy, it just doesn't have the darn juice that that uh, (laughs) sound idea is uh, 6002, whatever. (laughs) So it can be a real trap. Yeah. But I get it. I, I get why... The picture editors rely on them because they work. They, they get you to a point. Yeah, to quote you back to yourself, Mark, there's clarity of purpose, which is a phrase you used in one of your other posts. And I think that's kind of what shorthand is. There's clarity of purpose in it, you know? Right. Now, I'm glad you used the expression shorthand because tropes are shorthand. And shorthand is super valuable in certain situations. I'll be the first to admit that I live in an ivory tower. I get the kind of time I want to do a project. I get a decent amount of budget to do the projects that I want. And so I can afford to be an elitist and uh, spout (laughs) these truisms uh, because I don't have to worry about being held accountable for them. But I know many people in our community aren't as fortunate as I am. And so sometimes you just don't have any other time or budget to do anything but a shorthand. But let's give, give ourselves a moment here and recognize that shorthand is shorthand and dramatic exposition is dramatic exposition. Let's not confuse them. Shorthand gets you to something very quickly by leveraging some kind of commonality. What I think we all aspire to and hope to get to on a varying set of levels is originality and nuance. And the more original you are going to be, the more nuance you're going to arrive at, the more time it takes to get there. So all I'm trying to point out is there's this continuum that at the bottom is the shorthand, the trope. You can put in that Hollywood edge Doppler horn pass by. (laughs) (laughs) And that'll be just fine for 99% of the people that'll listen to your soundtrack. But if you aspire to something more beautiful, something more original, you need to catch yourself, 
maybe I shouldn't use that Doppler pass by today because I have, I've got an extra half an hour. I'm going to dig into some stuff and I'm going to find a novel way to do that today. I think an interesting question is how wide is this list? How much wider is it from just the Wilhelm scream? Right. And I think some of the things that are very usable, like repeatedly are things that are not hyper identifiable, like whooshes. I'm sure everyone's beaten up a whole bunch of sound yeah. idea whooshes and no one really is bothered by that. But this one child laughing just, just drills me up the wall <laughs> you are stuck because on it's this super, Renee's. super identifiable. Super right? <laughs> Therapy. <laughs> real. Sorry. That's what this podcast is. Well, look, there's certainly those sounds that haunt us, and I've got a few in my past. <clears throat> Maybe we'll talk about them later. But but then there's the the sort of the tropes in terms of the stylistic approach. So you know, one of my favorites that just makes me giggle is why is it that we decided that when somebody holds a gun, it has to rattle? Guns don't rattle. You would not buy a gun if it yeah. rattled. You would be afraid Healthy it guns would, don't rattle. <laughs> it would blow up in your face if it rattled the way most people sound someone holding a gun. It, you know, that's that kind of trope, that stylistic approach. It's divorced from a specific recording. It's a general approach to see a gun, hear a gun. And I'd listen for those kinds of things. So what's your opinion of those as you come across them? Um, dim. <laughs> Do you feel like a terrible pedant when you're like, if you're watching a movie and you're like, that would never happen in real life. But I mean, like, no. how are you supposed to watch a space movie though? Well, I, you know, look, I, <laughs> I feel as though I'm taking all of those considerations into the blender and, right. and, you know, look, there's no sound in space. There's no sound waves. So all those space movies wouldn't have any sound, but they wouldn't be very fun to listen to. So I think you just have to make some accommodations. I just feel as though I put out a blog post with 25 or so of some of my favorite targets that I feel like we could all agree that these are things we maybe we should be thinking twice about. No question you need to have sound in space. There's several others. But... Do we have to hear an EKG beep whenever we're in a hospital room? <laughs> I mean, on, you know, these are things, these are our sort of reflex reactions as, as sound editors and sound designers. And it's the things that I can remember that first thrill 44 years ago when I put an EKG beep into a hospital room and I thought, I'm making this scene better. I'm telling a story with sound. It took, for me, I'm a lot slower than most. It took me 20 or 30 years to sit back and think, well, wait a minute. What if there isn't an EKG machine in that hospital room? <laughs> Aren't we doing a disservice to the narrative here? And so th yeah. this is what I'm getting at is that I just want us all to just be aware of the stories we're telling and find ways to tell our stories better with sound and maybe more accurately. Yeah, there's something scary for people about, if I can't use that, what, what can I do? Like, that's when it really, the challenge to be creative yeah. hits you. And maybe you realize, maybe I don't know what to do, you know? <laughs> this is a really important point, Teresa. For some reason, either in film schools or in the community, We've saddled ourselves with the burden of being a sound designer means bringing sound and adding it 
to what we have. And sound design isn't strictly about being additive. Sound design is about having a point of view. And sometimes your best choice is subtractive or limiting. And I would say to even a, a, you know, a young first-year sound designer at a film school, maybe if you are listening to us and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to listen to those guys and I'm not going to use these tropes, but what am I going to use for this scene? Maybe nothing is the right answer. And you might get big brownie points from a very sophisticated filmmaker who will see your first presentation and say, you know what? I just love the fact that you didn't put beeps on all those computer monitors. That drives me crazy in movies. You get big props from smart filmmakers when you show restraint instead of thinking your job is always to be adding something. It seems like there's also a balance, too, between the reality of any given situation. So take the gun situation again, right? Like anyone that's handled a weapon, like people that are very familiar with weapons know that they don't rattle when you move them around. <laughs> but people that have never handled a weapon and are their only experiences with films where all the guns rattle wouldn't have that perspective. And so True. as a sound designer, you have to decide which perspective you're going to take. Well, I, I would argue that the sound designer should always take the narrative perspective, which is to say what's right for the scene. If the character is holding a broken gun, maybe a gun rattle is a good sound, but that's not true most of the time. And I, I think even if you don't know that guns don't rattle, Hopefully this podcast is doing some kind of public <laughs> service. <laughs> this is a health and safety issue, really. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Teresa. <laughs> I, I, I want to believe that this is going to have some valuable takeaways that you, you got taught to jam in a bunch of sound in your you know, first three years in film school. And we're teaching you maybe that wasn't such good instruction. Maybe yeah. you should think it through a little bit further. And the other challenge is, I think a lot of people legitimately think that an eagle makes a sound like a red-tailed hawk. Yeah. Right? I think they legitimately believe that. And also, like early on in my career, I legitimately believed that. Right? I thought eagles made that, wow, that they sounded like a red-tailed hawk, right? Right. And I am not an expert on bird calls. <laughs> I'm not an expert on most things I'm putting sound to. Yeah. There's a real question of like how deeply I, I even have the ability to dive into the reality of the, all the various things that we have to put sounds to. You know, Renee, that's a really smart topic to, to dig into a little bit because I'm not an ornithologist. I try to be geographically accurate when I can. But sometimes I have a bird background that I just like, that the mood is correct. But I know the guy from Cornell Ornithology Lab, when he goes to see my movies, is pulling his hair out thinking, no, that's a, you know, that's a willow ptarmigan and it only lives in the eastern Colorado portion of the whatever river. And You, you just know. ruined the movie for me. <laughs> you ruined the movie. I'm walking. <laughs> I want my money back, manager. <laughs> and yes, uh, clearly, that, that's part of what we're saying is that there's really only so far you can go, but 
I think it's incumbent upon all of us to be as educated as we can be. I will also say, I absolutely, the reason I know what an eagle sounds like now is because I had to go dig up a recording of an eagle and I was shocked chirp, at how chirp, ugly chirp, chirp. eagles sound <laughs> when they make noise. Yeah, the, the red-tailed hawk sounds more majestic, doesn't it? <laughs> it just does. And so, but I wouldn't have never learned that fact if I hadn't like pulled up a legit eagle recording yeah. at some point and figured that out. But, you know, it's, it's amazing. The red-tailed hawk is one of the sound tropes that sort of weaseled its way into the American psyche. It goes way beyond our community because now you hear it on every GMC and Ford commercial. The Canadians of this podcast are nodding their heads. <laughs> Not only the sound of an eagle, it's the sound of the great big West. America. Yeah. Yes, it's America. It's the sound of America. <laughs> it's the sound of freedom. I think I've seen it on some CPAC commercials. I mean, <laughs> um, it's, it's been so co-opted and it's got now a representational quality that goes beyond just the sound and, and cinema community. It's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a really super interesting one. Yeah. It's like, I think the sound got put into films because it's an interesting sound. And then putting in sounds of other actual eagles or whatever. Because the red tail hawk is like the sound of the, is the legitimate sound of the desert or westerns or whatever. Yeah. And then yeah. somehow westerns and like American valor and stuff like that yeah. got tied together. And then sound came along and the sound became associated with American valor. Yeah. And so the red tail hawk is like the stand in for the American eagle. <laughs> it's just like this weird psychological yeah. slip. Right. What's really interesting about that dissection is that in its infancy, it was super effective. Somebody made that fusion of there was sort of a sonic Kuleshov effect mating the Western plateau with with a, a red tailed hawk and bang, that works. And it worked for a year, a two, a decade, maybe. But now it's about as dumb as saying, you go, girl. You go, girl, worked <laughs> for about two or three years. And now nobody says it because it's lost its effectiveness. It sounds dated, just as dated as the red-tailed hawk does. <laughs> but didn't Stephen Colbert use it a lot, right? Yeah. And he used ironic. it. Like, that's a really that's right. cool, effective, ironic use of it. <laughs> that's right. He knew. I forgot about it. Was that in the lead-in, the intro yeah. to uh, the Colbert Report? Yeah, With exactly. the bald yeah. eagle ah! flying in. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we love him. My favorite red-tailed hawk story is uh, someone I know through the sound community. On their first day working at Skywalker Ranch, they were going in and they're, you know, he's going to change the world with his sound design. And he's walking uh, along the side of the building. And he starts hearing a red-tailed hawk. And he's like, oh, I thought the people at Skywalker wouldn't be allowed to use that. And then he realized it was an actual red-tailed hawk in a tree beside the building. <laughs> Cast me. Cast me already. Oh, my God. That is rich. Teresa and I are Canadian. And uh, we were lucky enough to go see a preview of 1917 because we were going to interview the sound crew for it. And we're in this sold out theater in Toronto, in Canada. And in Canada, the iconic bird is the sound of the loon. It's this really haunting. Yeah, I, I know it well. And in 1917, 
for dramatic purposes in the middle of like the German battlefront, <laughs> a loon cries out out of nowhere. And everyone, I'm sure in Europe it played great. Maybe in the States it plays great. But everyone in the theater in Canada was just like, hey, that's not right. What are you guys doing over there? I don't know what Tim thought. Um, I, I, had, I took a beat. I knew it wasn't indigenous, but I gave them credit because um, dramatically it was correct. Yeah, and it, I knew they would only alienate... Three Torontoans and uh, one Los Angelino, and that would be it. <laughs> I got busted on a loon in, early in my career. I had a director call me out for it. Fair enough. Yeah, don't mess with Canadians and our loons, okay? What's the story? <laughs> uh, um, Leonard Nimoy called me out for it. Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, I had used it in a, a film that he made called The Good Mother, and there's it was a wide lake shot that takes place in... Um, I think it was shot on Lake Arrowhead. I'm not sure if it was doubling for a different location. And I thought, oh, big forest, big lake, big echoey loon in the distance. And he knew. He had been studying his ornithology. <laughs> well, Leonard Nimoy gets Canada points right there. <laughs> Do you stand by that loon, story-wise? You're saying like, oh, some, sometimes it's okay because it has the right feeling. I do. I'm not so rigid that I don't recognize the need to tell a story with a sound sometimes, even if it means alienating, you know, some <laughs> small percentage of your audience. And, and, you know, and I make those silly uh, judgment calls in my head. You know, how many people would know it's a loon? Well, let's, you know, and it, you take those chances. I've been called out by gun enthusiasts for the caliber of a gun. You know, it didn't yep. sound big enough or small enough. I've been called out a number of times on using the wrong engine in a vehicle. You know, I didn't have a, a 65 Mustang series, so I used, uh, you know, a, a 65... Uh, yeah, use a Chevelle or something. A Chevelle. I used a Chevy. <laughs> and, you know, the, the car enthusiasts know those sounds. I don't, and I took a calculated risk because on that film, I didn't have budget to go and record a 65 Mustang. And this was the best I could do. And I think we must give each other that latitude. It's, it's part of our business. No one has unlimited budget to record and, you know, make everything authentic. I'm not that much of an elitist. I'd like to go back to something you said earlier about how restraint can really reflect well. And the specific film moment that brings up to me is in No Country for Old Men, when Llewellyn's looking through his uh, scope and he, he fires a shot. And then a shot fires back and the time distance is correct. You mm. see the poof and then you hear mm. the shot. Mm. And when you actually do those things correctly, like as it would actually occur, and the same thing's true with fireworks and thunder and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is striking when it's done in a way that you recognize as correct and as anti-trope. Boy, Renee, what a great example. I'm going to republish that blog in, in about six months and add some of these new ones. But that, that's a great one. And, I, you know, it's funny, you know, the reflex is, it's part of that early training we get. You know, in our early years, we're so thrilled at actually the fusion of sound and image. You put a gunshot on the flare of the muzzle and job done. God, I'm, I'm, I'm a genius. But, it, but it's, it's that kind of nuanced approach to sound that when we don't do it, we're not giving the audience credit for being as smart as they actually are. And every time I've heard it or I've done it, non-sound people always say to me, 
I loved how you saw the flash, but you didn't hear the report. So we knew how far away. And yeah, civilians get that stuff. I don't think we have to sweat those kinds of approaches anymore, but, but we do. You still got to get it through the director. You know, the directors and the producers still have to agree with that creative decision, especially in a moment like that in No Country for Old Men, where that is literally the only thing happening on the screen. Well, um, I guess you're suggesting that not all directors have as refined a sense of taste in audio. <laughs> well, ultimately, it's, it's their mix, right? And it's their story. And yes. so you're in their hands. They're uh, making the, the same that. calculations that you were talking about, Mark, about yeah. what can we get away with here? What's... What does my audience understand? Well, yeah. look, um, sometimes you have to cheat reality for dramatic purposes because the film editor might have cut it in such a way that if you don't put the bang on the flash, the cut is wrong. The timing, way of too the, fast. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the timing is wrong and you just have to do that. And that's fine. But I, I don't think you lose points and you, you actually risk gaining points if you're the Woody Allen in the room that says, mm, uh, excuse me, uh, excuse me, um, you know, when sound comes after the image and if we can time the distance, we should delay the gunshot two frames. I think most directors, you'll gain points by bringing that up as a talking point. And if you need to let it go, you let it go. But at least you, you brought it up and it shows... Yeah, he's really thinking about sound. Yeah. I had a moment in my career where this whole conversation came into stunning focus. I was working on two preschool animated series. One, its goal was to sell toys. And one, its goal was to educate small children. And the one that goal was to sell toys wanted every sound on everything, big boom, put it all in. And the one that was going to educate the kids still had some of the same types of visuals, but when we put the cartoony effects in that everyone was expecting, no, 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 pull those out. That's not the sound of this show. Okay, well, oh, how do tough. we do that? What is the sound of this show? And it, it takes a while to go back and forth to figure out what this sound is if you're not relying on those standard tropes for cartoons. And right. what... I think really ended up happening was the sound effects pulled back and the music handled those moments. But it took yeah. a while to, you know, let your sound editor ego go, oh, no, don't put anything there. I want to put it there. No, <laughs> let the music handle it. Let the music I handle it. I want that to go swoosh. Yeah, it, I just, so badly it just want needs to go, to go zing, damn it. <laughs> but, you know, my kids will ask me, you know, not anymore, but like, so I've got a seven and eight year old. And when they were, you know, when the, I only had one at the time, but when he was five or six daddy is this real there's a lot of reason i think for the representation of educational stuff for children to actually be correct because the children like they got to figure out if it's real or not what they're looking at you know i just wrote a blog post on how to cut uh, or design a fight and that idea of reality weighed on me heavily because believe it or not i've been in a couple of fights and witnessed a few and I'm always amused that we have kind of made our bed for ourselves as sound designers and editors by amping up. There isn't a fight in cinema that is honest with what a fight. I mean, when you do this, there's very little sound. It's not all those cracking walnuts and watermelons splitting and, you know, baseball bats hitting things, you know, all the, the stuff that we do to amp it up. And 
I guess I'm, I'm just drawing our collective attention to that, and we can talk about it if you'd like, that, that that's a trope in and of itself. Clearly, there are fights that need that because it has to feel visceral. In fact, it ha- probably has to feel bigger than what it would really feel like for the audience to convey how dangerous the moment is. But I would love to see one in 30 fights on screen where you hear it the way you really hear it. I feel like Fight Club did a pretty good job of that. Fight Club, they did a tremendous job. Yeah. Yeah, and it's very, like, it's actually more effective, affective sometimes to see a fight scene like that where it's like, oh, yeah, it sort of puts you in touch with reality of the brutality of what it's like to actually get the shit beaten out of you. Way back, we did an episode of Tom Bender's. Where I went and got punched in the face. Um, so I was boxing. You missed this. <laughs> yeah, this, this was before Teresa, I think. Um, so yeah, I was, I was learning how to box. And I did get in the ring. And I did get punched in the face by somebody that was bigger and stronger than me. And um, I had a real sense of what that experience really is like when you're in there. And it's nuts, right? And it's like when you get punched in the face, it feels like... It feels almost the same as like when you hit your head on something, when you stand up and hit your head, it feels like that. Um, and we did our boxing roundtable very recently. And I ran into what you were talking about there, Mark, where everything is so massive that you just lose a sense of perspective, you know, yeah. when everything's 11, nothing's 11. Yeah. And especially like as a boxing fan, as somebody that I watch boxing and I enjoy it as a spectator sport. And I can see the difference between a jab and a right cross <laughs> and they're very, very different as they, as they get broadcast, you can feel it. And then when somebody lands something big, it sounds distinct from the rest of the fight. Yeah. That was episode 41, Renee. There you go. Thank you. But the other <laughs> thing is, is if we're not talking about boxing, if we're talking about in a movie where two people get in a street fight, yeah. the reality of a, I've seen a street fight before the real sound is just two guys completely out of breath. <gasps> it's yeah, mostly exactly. grabbing their yeah, knees after breath. like a minute and a half. It's incredibly yeah. exhausting. It's scuffling. It's like shoes <laughs> on, scuffling. The, on yeah. the, shoes the asphalt. And <laughs> yeah, and that sells it. And there's something really riveting about how pathetic that is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And that's why Fight Club was so effective. Yeah. Um, especially with what they did with the perspectives in, that, in, the, in the fights in that film. And yeah, I wonder if you recognize the trope and you're familiar with the trope and you react to the trope, but we're also able to recognize the real thing and that hits you. And this is reminding me of the conversation we had with Nicola Becker for um, Sound of Metal recently, where he was talking about trying to situate people in their bodies as audience members. And that that is the key to truth is that when people feel it in their bodies, then they are locked into the story in a way that you would not be if you're writing the tropes or writing the sounds that you're expecting to hear. There's like two sort of like psychological frames of mind that are at work. That's beautifully put, actually. I thought they did a tremendous job on Sound of Metal and hats off to them all. But that, that, that clearly he found a way in and uh, was truthful with it and and stayed consistent throughout that film. Yeah, and he talked a lot in all the interviews that we, the one that we did and a lot of the other ones, about like spending a lot of time trying to recreate experiencing the conditions himself 
and Riz Ahmed, like wearing your plugs and stuff yeah. to kind of like get into the physical space so that they were all trying to get into that physical space. I would argue we could call that a method sound design. Of yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've done that a number of times to get into the space of the character or the situation so I could experience it firsthand and extract something from that. Super valuable. Can you give us an example of that? <sighs> now you put me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did a fight film like 10 or 12 years ago called Warrior. And I did a great deal of research with two MMA fighters, including this was part of the research I was referring to, where I got in the ring and I grappled and I, I had them punch me and I punched them. And then I went back to my studio after that experience and then flagellated, self-flagellated. I, I literally stripped down to my skivvies and hit every part of my body with a four-ounce glove. And there's a difference between... That and that and yep. that and that. And I, yep. I punched everything on my body. I wanted to not only experience it firsthand, but I wanted I recorded all of that at the same time as well. And that's what I built the library out of was all this self-inflicted <laughs> punching. Yeah, but that, and that's how you get the perspective. I like the idea that we think of all the sounds being built up in super intense situations when really it's... Okay, that was my left bicep being hit by because you got to tag everything. <laughs> Literally, yeah. exactly. I, I, I had you know black and blue marks when I would come home from that, but it was worth it because I think I, I want to feel that that film was uh, an honest approach to MMA fighting, as honest as I could make it at the time. I think it really proves the point, though, that to. Step aside from the trope. Do the thing that's not obvious and not that you know will not instantly work. It's difficult. It's it's more effort. Yes, it is. It's harder. And that's why I think a lot of the trope sounds, or at least the trope techniques, maybe not the sounds specifically, but at least the trope techniques get put in place first. Right? Of course. Well, you know, there's a sliding scale. You know, it's, it's a sort of a time over money curve as well. Sometimes all you can do is tropes. I have friends who have two-day turnarounds on their half-hour episodic. You don't have time to be screwing around the way I do. Sometimes you have no choice other than to use something that's tropish, maybe, and, and, you know, sells the moment. Because in fairness, a lot of the filmmakers that create that kind of content that doesn't give sound as much time as they'd like to do something nuanced. They're not expecting nuanced sound. They, they want things that read, 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 because sound yeah. isn't telling their story, or perhaps, to be fair, isn't telling their story in the way that something that has a little more time could. It's just a reaction to the reality that you're given. Yeah. So you did Blade Runner. What's your approach to computer screens? Teresa's laughing. <laughs> um, I think there is only one computer screen beep in Blade Runner. I don't think we used any. Yeah. That was, you know, something we just agreed early on that I'm thinking back. There's very few. You know, it's funny. It comes from having spoken with some scientists and futurists and engineers who have looked at what the future might look like for the rest of us. And they all agree that our present is already too noisy. We don't want our computers polluting it with any more. And all you need really is the bare minimum. I, I remember I'd, I got a tour of Xerox Park, the Palo Alto Research Center, 
up north, and I got to meet the scientists and researchers who developed what they call the confirmation tone. This is the very first computer beep that told the user whatever it was that you just asked for, it got implemented. And so we've leveraged that to the silly kind of nadir where now everything on a computer screen has to acknowledge it, the completion of a task. And you just don't need to do that, nor do scientists and, and researchers want us to live in a world like that. Can you imagine what a NORAD would sound like, <laughs> you know, with 28 computer or more computer monitors, and they're all making... People would go insane. <laughs> Even our own sound studios. We all have lots of monitors and stuff going on. Right. There's the sound of the laptop fan going on because the computation is gone Too up. intense, yeah. But, but <laughs> Teresa, that's a very intelligent use of sound to tell a little yeah, story. That's a nice one, the, the hard drive writing. <laughs> CPU load. I think a lot of those are about directing the eye around the screen sometimes too, or at least directing you to some specific action. Mm. If something flashes on a screen, but it's like not full screen, then you know maybe a little beep will draw attention to it. Yeah. Look, all of these things are important tools. Uh, we need sounds on monitors because that's the way films get made. Maybe all I'm saying is let's just think about how much, mm -hmm. how many beeps we're putting on those screens. Can, can we <laughs> economize on just a little bit and make this a world that, repre uh, that represents a world that we actually live in? I'll tell you what, my wife brought up one. <laughs> She's now been living with a sound nerd for 20 years. She now recognizes when in a chase scene, the sound person puts a asphalt skid when they're chasing each other in a backwoods or in the dirt or in gravel. Yes. And she's now spotting those inconsistencies. Well, and she's also spotting as well that everything in a car chase has a skid on it. And again, yeah. I, I brought it up as a trope because I've done a ton of vehicle recording. I have driven the vehicles myself, and I've recorded them. And I know how hard it is to get those tires to break loose. And so I get a chuckle. Look, it amps up a chase sequence, no doubt about it. It gives it some juice. But I still think we can cut back 15% on some of those cornering skids and peel outs because they're just, you know, it's just over the top. <laughs> One of the lowest moments of my sound career was when my cousin called me out on a tire skid that didn't make sense. <laughs> and it was a specific one, one of the very few that I've tried to fight against with the director. I was just like, no, this does not make sense. And the director was just like, put it in, I want it. And I was like, Ugh! and then like it aired. And the next day he, he took a screen capture of it with his phone. He was like, why is this car making this noise? And I just hung my head low. <laughs> That was your My Cousin Vinny moment. Yeah, exactly. Remember when she's in the, the witness box and she says, it had pause attraction and there's no way the axle could have spun the wheels and made that skid pattern. Yeah. Oh man, that's a callback. I remember that movie. The only seen. time I ever skid tires is like driving the Honda Fit with the bald tires. Yeah. Yeah. The, the nice I, cars don't make those noises. Yeah. <laughs> the brand it's pretty new. pretty hard in modern cars Porsche. to break them. Yeah. yeah. So we covered, uh, we haven't really talked about creaky doors, about how no one in any film has uh, any oil anymore in their life. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> no one has any pride of ownership. <laughs> 
I really like clean sounding doors. Like I, I work hard on a lot of doors to make my places sound expensive when that's appropriate. And like, that's the thing. It's like always the in and out, but it's like never right. the creek. Yeah. Well, again, these are the, the, the early lessons we learn when we're, you know, first setting out. Yeah. A, a door opens, you heard it in a horror film, you put a creek on it and you think you've done your job. But that's just kind of sound 101. There's, there's, as you say, Renee, there's so many things you can say with a door. Uh, you can imply, you know, a thick door says maybe somebody of affluence lives in this place because cheap apartments have hollow corridors. And, and uh, you know, what's on, and how much sound you let through the door. That tells you a lot about the neighborhoods that that location uh, exists in. There's, there's. 10 things you can say with a door that says something about the story. But I, I just don't think we need to be squeaking as much as we squeak. <laughs> what about futs? Oh, yeah. You know, um, I think, as I said in the blog, I'm giving um, the community like a five to 10 year grace period on this, but we got to start <laughs> phasing it out. I mean, you, we all know what it's like now when... Um, TVs sound as good as movie theaters now, and we telephones sound great. And uh, there's so many devices that are full fidelity nowadays. We don't need to futz everything. Again, it's a shorthand. Back to what you said, Teresa. It's a shorthand that says a, a communication of some kind is coming to us, and it has been compromised in some way for some reason. And so, of course, a broadcast from the moon it's, it, or Mars, it's taken a long time to get here and it's gone through lots of filters and it's probably going to be distorted in some sense. But when I watch a television in my kitchen in a scene in a movie, my TV sounds as full fidelity as somebody standing in the room with me. And so, as I said in the post, uh, you know, there's some brave pioneers that go as far back as Sex, Lies, and Videotape, where conversations can be had without any futz at all, and the audience, it didn't get lost as to whether that person was in the room with you or on the telephone. Uh, I think that the film Her uh, did some beautiful stuff. Please wait as your individualized operating system is initiated. everything with you pretty good actually it's really nice to meet you yeah it's nice to meet you too all those lines were recorded nice and and full and reproduced pretty full I, maybe they put something slight on it i've never asked ren kleiss about that but they sounded pretty full to me and that to me sounded like yeah we, we've conquered the speaker problem <laughs> There's no more filtering and crackling and static when we communicate with each other. And that's only going to continue going into the future. And I, I think it, it will be a way of signaling that you're kind of an adult, that you're making uh, mature sound decisions because things just don't sound all that crackly anymore. Yeah. It seems like there's a sense of intimacy with full frequency voice. Um, that is lost a little bit when you high pass things. And so maybe there's a story reason to move things one way or the other. Sure. Of course. There's always a story reason. I have a client 
who is a defense contractor, and they have a bunch of different communications that actually happen on helicopters and aircraft carriers and that type of thing. And when we put together things for them, they are so specific and detailed with me about, hey, now this is ICS radio, and this is on the headset over here, yeah. and this would have come through this comm system instead, and this one's like, oh, kind of crazy and crunchy, and this one sounds yeah. really good. And you know, we spent months just kind of hashing out the different radio systems that are literally in use in the U.S. military. And then when I get scripts in, and it's, everyone's just people just recording like specific, you know, um, military jargon on their phones and stuff, but I have to treat them per like which comm system oh. they're on. But but you did the research of what that specific filter might be like? <laughs> it was dictated to me. <laughs> <laughs> but that's awesome. And, and look, again, I'm not trying to be this, the, 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 the sound police. I'm not suggesting with all these tropes that we uh, rid ourselves of them. Clearly in things like FUTs, there's all sorts of great uses for them. And that, that, that's a classic example. Military communications are often filtered in a very specific way. And we want to be true to that. All I'm suggesting is that let's not have a knee-jerk response to FUTs because it's coming over a speaker. Uh, yes. Let's use it intelligently. That's all. I find gating and limiting to be a big, big thing with FUTs as well. Like really getting the, the dynamics exactly like how the rest of the circuit would work. Yeah. Ends up being a big deal in my world, at least in FUTs. I love that verisimilitude. I've tended to go the, the long route by getting the actual devices when I can and, and mm -hmm. you know, re-recording just because I can. <laughs> Force fields. <laughs> Force <laughs> Force fields are one of the most bizarre things because a lot of the time the person's not supposed to know they're there and yet they're right. emanating this buzzing sound. <laughs> you also have to see it. Yeah. Like on the visual side, imagine the force fields that you can't actually see too, right? Yeah, maybe yeah. we should make a rule that we're not going to accept scripts that have force fields in them. <laughs> <laughs> Just eliminate the problem altogether. Well, at least as a, as a visual reference, I mean, if you see it, then you know it's there and you don't run into it. <laughs> it's not just the idea of force fields. It's that we've pigeonholed ourselves. It's our own worst instincts. In most science fiction films, force fields are this kind of low hum, right? I, surely we can be more creative with the kinds of sounds that might come from a force field if there were one or were such a thing, then just, I know we can do better. I would say a good approach on force fields would be to really interrogate the specific uh, supposed mechanism by which the force field is actually being enacted. Right. Right. Yeah. And then I find that a lot with sci-fi stuff is like, just to throw questions out of like, like, what are the physics behind what's making this occur? And then from right. that, I can start to dream up ways to approach the sound. It's funny you should say that. On Dune, um, we did that very research because Frank Herbert had actually done it himself for the personal shields that individuals could wear. And I can't give anything away, but we followed his advice. We followed his science. And then I think we created believable sound uh, that's true to the book and, and true to the science. Yeah. Even when it's sci-fi, at least, the, you know, they generally have an idea of like what the fictional force is that's causing whatever it is to happen. And you can tap into that somehow yeah. and, and at least have an anchor. 
again, I feel, I feel like I have to defend myself because I've come off as this, blo- this bloviating elitist, which I might be, and that's fine. But, um, and I love the idea of a, a force field in science fiction. There's nothing wrong with that idea. Um, it's, it's very useful in science fiction. Uh, I think I'm just saying, let's find some other sounds than those buzzy things. Yeah. One trope that isn't on your list on your blog post, and for anyone listening, uh, we'll put up a link, but it's at markmangini.com. You can go find this blog post. Was the idea that anytime anyone walks up to speak in front of a crowd to a microphone, oh, that there's a little oh burst of feedback, which is extra oh, weird I, because I we're sound people. Why right. are we? We're taking a shot at ourselves on this one. Right. We are our own worst enemies with that one. That's come into the sort of uh, zeitgeist. I think, you know, civilians, as we say, now come to expect it when somebody walks up to a microphone. It's so ludicrous. Yeah. That's a good one. That's going on the list. <laughs> they also, like the actor also has to tap the mic when they walk up to it, though. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> An actor will refuse to walk up to a mic and not tap it. Yeah. <laughs> and then no feedback. I, I want writers to put that into the script. As Sally approached the dais to present her eulogy, she did not tap the microphone and it did not feed back. <laughs> she could tell by the reverberation in the space <laughs> that the PA was live. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of reverberation in the space, that, that was another one that, again, this is some fun research to do, but 70, 80, 90 years ago, a great sound designer discovered the use of reverb to make us feel displaced from reality. And now, 90 years later, we're still putting reverb on dialogue to say dream sequence. Surely we can do better than that. And that, that's such a shorthand. I mean, you don't even have to be a sound designer to think that way. I've been in a, a hundred sound briefs and the filmmakers or the, somebody from the research group says, you know, maybe you should put some reverb on that voice to, so they know it's, it's in a dream. I mean, it's out there. That's how yeah. insidious this idea is. It's useful, good shorthand when you don't got much time and you can't twiddle with a cool plug-in or you know whatever other else you might do. But let's let's start experimenting a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the best dreams have no reverb on them, and then you can't tell you're in a dream until you're halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I said, I have yet in my sixty-four years of existence had even a sound designer come to me after having had a vivid dream and said, I had this incredible dream. I was with my filmmaker and he loved what I was doing. And all the dialogue had a two and a half second reverb time. No one has ever said to me that they actually heard reverb in their dreams. I don't think it exists. So the one thing on your list that we haven't really got into yet, Mark, is the Wilhelm scream. Yeah. So yeah. that actually kind of draws into what I mentioned when we first started about people kind of feeling like they're part of a legacy of sound, you know, right. especially people that are in our general age range. Uh, yeah. You know, we grew up with it in Indiana Jones. We grew up with it in uh, Star Wars. So I feel like people think they're tapping into that legacy when they use sure. it. And yeah. I think that there are some people who legitimately can Ben Burt. Use it all you want. He gave it up. Um, I just spoke to him about this, and he's as done with it as, as I am. Well, if he's done with it, then there you go. 
Well, he was the originator. He and Richard Anderson, it was a personal joke. Mm-hmm. And uh, I heard about it from Richard because he was my first partner. And we did it in all our early movies. But now, you know, if you typed in Wilhelm, you'll get over a million hits on Google. That should be reason enough to stop using it. When directors are asking for it by name, that should be reason enough not to use it because it's not cool anymore. It's not even novel anymore. It's 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 been outed. It's 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 like bell bottom jeans. It's it's we're done. Well, the real way to get rid of the Wilhelm is whichever production studio originally recorded is for them to Warner's. just start suing everybody that's using it. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you try and put something in that the lawyers think they're going to get sued over, you're, it's coming out. <laughs> You know, I, I feel like I mean, that's a dangerous tripwire. It's, it's such a delicious recording. I have the original from the Warner Brothers oh. Library, and, and so I have all the outtakes. You can hear a director or maybe a sound director coaching that actor to get into it, and it takes it goes to take four before we get the authentic Wilhelm. It's a it's a pretty compelling recording, but I I just don't want anyone, especially a young sound designer, using it. You know, under the auspices of feeling like they're being cool because I, I just don't think that's true anymore. I would ask that young sound designer, make your own Wilhelm. Let's put Wilhelms in movies, but stop using that one. I stopped using it over 10 years ago, and I did a movie called The Spiderwick Chronicles that had all these crazy creatures and goblins and dwarves and things like that. And my homage to the Wilhelm was I had one of my actors do a goblin Wilhelm and as he fell through the roof into the room. Now I was done. I did my little twist on it and I don't need to do that anymore. And yet I would encourage people in the sound community to add, you know, that was Ben and Richard's signature for some time. And if you were, you know, deep inside the community, you knew it. It was an in joke and it was fun for a good 10 years. I think it's still fun to do things like that. And I encourage people in the sound community to put their Alfred Hitchcock moments sneak themselves in in whatever way possible. And I'll tell you how I do it now. Instead of the Wilhelm, I put the recordings, voice recordings of all of my dear friends who have passed away. And this is the way I allow them to live forever in art. No one will ever know whose voice it is. It has never sullied someone's movie. Only I know that that voice at that moment in that bar scene was my friend Warren. It's just blended in with the walla, and that's my little inside thing. And it makes me feel good that they, they get to live forever in, in art. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think that speaks to why people, specifically with the Wilhelm, what was attractive about it, right? The fact that it's an in-joke and mm-hmm. that it's something that you and I know about and no, other people don't know about, and it's a thing, right? I have something very similar to yours. I had a dog, a little basset hound buttercup, and we had her for years. And she was the most expressive animal I've ever come across in my entire life. She would growl and grunt and snarl and bark and sniff and do the head flap with the jowls and all of that. And I've got Buttercup in every film um, that's ever come through my hands anyway. Oh, that's great. That's what, that's exactly it, Renee. Yeah. And, it, and it's, it's for the exact same reason. Like no one will ever know, but I'll know. 
that I've got I've got her here and there, you know. There's just never and especially tricky when there's films that don't have dogs in them. Because <laughs> I've got to find a spot for her. Like science fiction? <laughs> You're on Mars? Yes. <laughs> um because it's weird. She almost sounds like a person when she was doing her little like <laughs> she would do that kind of thing and she would she could sound like a human being when she wanted to. And so yeah, I mean I've got stacks and stacks of buttercup. Great. That I can I can just pick a little piece and sneak her in there every so often. Did you know yeah. Mike Hopkins, Mark? Uh, he was a friend, and we would socialize on occasion. Lovely man. So I miss him. Ethan Vanderine and Erica Dahl do what you are saying with uh, clips of him. They put him in a lot of their movies. I didn't know that. Oh, good so for he them. did a lot of vocalizations for the Lord of the Rings movies, if I recall the story correctly. And uh, part of those vocalizations have become Bumblebee's character in the Transformer oh. movies. And they did a pain and gain movie about weightlifters. And whenever the, the weights are lifted up, it would be Mike Hopkins grunts <gasps> that would uh, oh, be covering so it. Great. So they, uh, I, I don't know if that's still ongoing. It was a couple years ago that we did that interview, but that, that was something that they were doing. So it's very similar to what you're saying. I'm very happy to hear that. Yeah, be original. Be original. That's what we're saying here, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. 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 Be thoughtful in your approach to sound. Don't be reflexive. I guess we kind of punted on officially saying goodbye to Wilhelm, but I guess we kind of did anyway. We've, no, we can do yeah, it. We can do it. Should we sing Old Lang Syne? <laughs> <laughs> Good old acquaintance <laughs> be forgotten. Oh, there's that 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 also that Frankenstein werewolf howl. That that's another old oh, sound. We didn't even get into like the uh, tinnitus ear ringing when people catch concussions and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of these. I just won't. There's there's many. There's many. <laughs> so. It's, it's it's feeling like kind of an, like an X Men moment where they're all gonna, all of the lesser characters are gonna have to get retri- retired or something. <laughs> I think this the is hawk good for is, our community. The hawk is sadly walking away. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the way we retire it. We play a sound and then we play the. Red-Held Hawk and the Wilhelm, like, right after it. And then it, now it's done. Oh, and they play the taps, you know, like they do at a, a military... <laughs> yeah, can the Hawk... The Hawk is going to swoop in and, like, eviscerate Wilhelm. And he'll scream to death. And then he will expire, and then we'll bury him. <laughs> well, it's also ironic that we're talking That's about getting rid of audio tropes and saying, you know, do the drum roll and the taps song. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. We can't We're escape doomed. it. We're doomed. Um, <laughs> don't don't we have to do spring cleaning every now and again and just Yeah. I haven't worn that outfit in ten years. I'm giving it away. <laughs> yep. So ladies and gentlemen, to the Wilhelm. it's officially we'll retired the Wilhelm, okay? Let's move on from that and I'll come up with our own Wilhelms to move forward with. Rest in peace, Wilhelm. Dun dun dun. <laughs> R.I.P. All right, here's the last time. The last time you'll hear it from us. There's the Wilhelm. I can't do it. That sounded more like the red tail hawk. (laughs) I don't even know. Yeah, it did. Oh, no. They fused. That's it. Let's morph the two. (laughs) Well, Mark, thank you very much for joining us. It's uh, always a thrill to have you on. And uh, I know our listeners enjoy it as well as uh, the three of us. So thank you for uh, joining us. 
Teresa, Renee, it's always a pleasure. You, you, you three are so smart. <laughs> and uh, it's, a, it's a joy to talk with you. <laughs> Tim laughed. <laughs> well, whenever Dune finally uh, sees the light of day, we'll have to have you on to talk about your work on that. Yes. And, uh, uh, October 8th, 2021. It's coming out this year in a theater. Excellent. Let's do it. Looking forward to it greatly. Filmbenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening.